Hello, I'm Ted Hodgkinson, and in this edition of Southbank Centre's book podcast, we're bringing you a special from the Man Booker Prize. I'm here with winner Anna Burns, author of Milkman, which tells the story of a young woman who is sexually stalked by an older man during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Told in a voice serrated with the jagged edges of contemporary speech, I certainly learnt a few new swear words in reading this, it highlights the violence that courses beneath and above the surface of everyday life. To borrow a line from our narrator, these were knife-edge times, primal times, with everybody suspicious of everybody. It's an unsettling tale told with flinty humour and saw Anna Burns triumph as the first winner from Northern Ireland to win the Man Booker Prize on Tuesday night. Anna, welcome. Hi. I want to ask you, it has such a distinctive voice, this novel. What were its origins? Did the voice come to you fully formed or did it accrete and gather over time? Fully formed. I mean, I did notice it right away when this girl started, well, basically telling me her story. Do you remember the moment when it came to you fully formed? Yes. I was trying to work some notes that I had into a little story and these notes were about me walking while reading, which I used to do. Um, and it was actually more about people's reaction to me doing that. They seemed to think, you know, they say, you're that girl who walks about reading and I get this everywhere. So I thought, oh, I'll write a story around the reaction to that. Not so much me doing it, but this girl suddenly appeared, this teenage girl, and she's walking down this interface road. She's reading a book, Ivanhoe, and she's obsessing in her mind about having had a row with her sister. She's feeling very aggrieved, put upon. I don't know what the row was about, but she certainly feels innocent of whatever she's being accused of. And then it's switched to another scene where she's in a bar with her friend and her friend's telling her off about something. And again, I didn't know what it was, but I was capturing the emotions. And then at the end, she's in another scene where her sister slaps her face. But in all this rumination that she does, this language was coming out. There was a big tumble. I mean, I, I get a lot of stuff I don't use at all. So I was recording it very, very, very quickly. And then certain bits, it's like the, the, the notes themselves push out what they don't want. I end up with a, a combination of words which ended up as her voice. These were, there, were, there were moments that were seeds, real moments that you experience, and that then the notes that you wrote that about came out that. of those moments started to shape into a voice. Yes, yeah. and it was her voice, not my voice. And I just went with it. So I got the story. Although she does use language in a strange way, it is the diction of this whole sort of fictional community. Mm. But most of it comes through her because she's first person narrator. So um, it stands out more through her. And I think the language is integral. The use of the language is integral to the book. And I just follow the clues, as it were. It's a bit like intuition. You, you, you only get the first step and then you have to trust and have faith that more steps will come and that it'll all make sense in the end or come out in the wash is that expression. So that's what I did. I just wrote down whatever I was told to write down, whatever I was hearing, whatever I was being given. And then I the book came. So would you say that it's steeped in the particular language of this place, but it's also a fictionalised place, isn't it? Because it's not yes. directly named as Belfast or Northern Ireland. No, it's not. I mean, I wanted to, I mean, I, I can see from people's reaction, but I would have hoped it would have been so, that it is recognisable as a skewed form of Belfast in the 1970s, which is, of course was during the Troubles. And I'm hoping I've written it in a way that would be, that would show it's representative of other closed societies existing under similar restrictive circumstances. The language itself, definitely it is this world. It is a mix of archaisms, old-fashioned coinages and Belfast vernacular. 
and I liked that combination, that little mix that swirled together and came out of her. Mm. Well, I mean, I went into her head and got it. <laughs> Is there something about the intensity of the voice that seems to want to show us the warping influence of conflict, right? And also yes. of of sexual predation and that the way that her voice is is it's full of this dark humor but it's also it's it captures some of the violence in her surroundings as well and is that something you consciously wanted to show that in the voice it reflects the fact that this is a society that's been that's been under a sort of a pressure cooker environment because of violence and conflict well, I wanted it to show that, but I didn't plan it. I mean, I discover the writing as I'm writing it. I get surprised, hopefully as much as the reader would get surprised, or hopefully as the reader would get surprised. There's a mix going on because, I mean, she does go back. She doesn't go exactly back, but she is going round in her mind, the, trying to work out her situation. She's confused. But as she's going back and worrying and not really moving forward there's a lot of reaction to stuff she's not really finding solutions I feel that adds to the tension and the under, under the surface menace that's in the book because I didn't want to have and in fact well it didn't come you know outright violent acts I wanted to have the menace in, in the language or I discovered the menace in the language but the language is also a kind of protection because she does these digressions um perambulations, circumlocutions, ruminations. And it's, it's there's a lack of safety. I have said this at the South Bank. There's a, a lack of safety in being straightforward. Um, you might be seen to be who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this front of an, a barricade, in fact, a sort of barrier, which of course is a big part of what the book's about, these demarcations. And so the language is, works like that as well. So it's, it's kind of twofold. It's, well, maybe it's more than twofold, but it's bringing out the menace and it's also hiding individuality. It's, it's also her defence mechanism. Yes, her... well, that, that, I'd say that's maybe her main defence mechanism. I mean, the, the book itself, it's not traditional realism uh, written in, in a traditional realist style, but then life's not always traditional realism either. And I think the language fits in with that, that it's not... It's not a, you know, a recognisable, real, realistic world. You mentioned that, that one of the seeds for the book is was you reading a book and walking down the street, and that's, that's what the narrator does too. And yes. it's peppered with references to her reading through the book. And yes. Gogol's overcoat and Tristram Shandy and so on. And I wondered if, if you felt as though, you say it's not in, re, in the realistic style, and I wondered if you felt consciously connected to that sort of, that tradition of absurdist literature that that finds logic in absurd humour. Yes. Well, I think that's true, that it does seem to be so. I mean, I never start from an idea or I want to write something on these themes. I, I always just write where the energy is. Even if it stops, I then wait for the next bit of energy. I don't try to force energy back where it's deciding it's not coming back for now. And then I recognise things. So I can see there is absurdity. There is this, it's upside down, it's ridiculous, but it's true. I mean, it's nice that people are seeing that, but I can't plan my writing. Is there a moment when you're writing where you feel like you've hit on something true? Do you, do you read it out to yourself? Do you, when is, is there a moment when you think, I've got it? Yes, it's very distinct when, you know, the business is coming, <laughs> as it were. There's, there's something about I have to be present, I have to show, I can't go and say do something else while I'm waiting for the writing. Um, that would be a bit like saying what do you do over here while you're over there. It's, it's, it is like meditating. I have to 
be still and wait and see what comes. There's a there's very like, mm, something's come into the room and now we're going to get going. That waiting process that I was trying to explain rather clumsily is is the biggest part of the writing process for me. There's this big long bit where I'm on tenterhooks, but I try to pretend to myself I'm not on tenterhooks so that I can feel as relaxed as I can feel. And then at some point, the writing just steps in and goes chunk, 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 chunk. And I will get a big load of it all at once. And then there'll be another period. And then I'll get another big... How long are these periods? I honestly, I don't know. It's a bit like a dream world, um, Mm. entering a dream world. And I know when it's there because I burst with happiness. You know, I can feel my heart starts racing. I start to feel all tingly and it's like angel shivers sort of experience. Oh, good. We're starting now. We're getting off on it. It'll just come. The writing just comes. I mean, it brings on happiness, (laughs) I suppose, (laughs) is what I mean. There's the worrying bit before where I'm, I'm trying to be calm and just trying to be still and alert. And I think it knows when I'm not. I think it knows when I'm just anxious so it doesn't come. And and then you transmit those angel shivers to the reader as well because that's the, you know, that I think that it's an enormously energetic book and it's written with that kind of um, intensity that feels like it does come out in these these enormous sort of bursts. Right. And, um, but one of the other things that's interesting about it is that it, you mentioned tenterhooks, that the book keeps you somewhat on tenterhooks. And I think there are several layers of the book that, exist in a very liminal way that there are characters who are on the cusp of having relationships or interactions or you know that the I mean to talk about specifically the milkman this one of the central characters that there's this there's a line in the book that I had not been having an affair with the milkman I did not like the milkman but I'd been frightened and confused by his pursuing and attempting an affair with me that seems to sort of sum up somewhat the the mindset that She's being pursued. There's yes. a kind of sense of being the sh- a shadow falling across the whole of the book. Is that liminal space, is that that something is on the cusp of happening, is that something that really gives you a lot of energy as a writer? I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I will say Milkman, I knew he wasn't going to enter the book physically. There are four bits where she meets him, four parts, and then the rest is like there's reported meetings with him. You know, she goes mm. to the library and he's there, she goes to the shop and he's there. But I knew that there were four actual descriptive passages where she where she meets him. And I feel that although there are only four, I, I mean, I felt earlier on he was always there. Even when I was getting the other characters, I could feel his sort of overshadowing sort of shadow, (laughs) dark bit. I like that. I like that he didn't have to come in all the time to say, don't forget I'm here stalking her. I mostly get that with him, that when you speak about a liminal Mm. feeling, um, someone there but not there. Following on from that, I want to ask you about, this is a book that deals with sexual predation. It deals with violence in a very direct way. Obviously, you've been deeply immersed in the in the writing of this book and in the way that you've been describing. But how do you think that it's been received in this broader cultural conversation that's going on about gender and sort of in the world of Me Too and all of that? Yes. Well, I did finish Milkman in 2014. So I wasn't writing it with that in mind. I mean, they've it's always existed, you know, prowling and stalking and I mean, I think it's coming more to the fore now, but in terms of how it's being received, I suppose I don't know. I don't know how it's being received. I mean, I, it's coming up in questions a lot. I mean, it seems timely in its publication and I'm glad of that. I mean, I'm glad it's, it is, but it, it certainly wasn't planned. My job is write the book as well as the book 
get, getting it to the book's intentions, get it out there, and then how, how people receive it, what they take from it, really is out of my control. Great. So now we're going to hear a reading from your uh, book, which you read at the Royal Festival Hall at Southbank Centre on Sunday night. Yes. And a chat with the writer and author, Damien Barr. This is before, of course, that you were aware that you'd won the prize, uh, which we'll talk more about in a moment. <laughs> we never find out the name of who's its girl, the middle daughter who reads while walking and whose maybe boyfriend she worries might not be a proper man. But we find out almost everything else about this young woman and she is as defiant as the divided town that she lives in. And maybe we find out too much about her. Milkman is unexpectedly funny, frequently filthy, and eavesdroppingly real. Anna Barnes. Hiya. I'm going to read from the beginning of my book. The day somebody met somebody, put a gun to my breast, and called me a cat, and threatened to shoot me, was the same day the milkman died. He had been shot by one of the state hit squads and I did not care about the shooting of this man. Others did care though and some were those who in the parlance knew me to see but not to speak to and I was being talked about because there was a rumour started by them or more likely by first brother-in-law that I had been having an affair with this milkman and that I was 18 and he was 41. I knew his age, not because he got shot and it was given by the media, but because there had been talk before this, for months before the shooting, by these people of the rumor that 41 and 18 was disgusting, that 23 years difference was disgusting, that he was married and not to be fooled by me, for there were plenty of quiet, unnoticeable people who took a bit of watching. It had been my fault too, it seemed, this affair with the milkman. But I had not been having an affair with the milkman. I did not like the milkman and had been frightened and confused by his pursuing and attempting an affair with me. I did not like first brother-in-law either. In his compulsions, he made things up about other people's sex lives, about my sex life. When I was younger, when I was 12, when he appeared on my eldest sister's rebound after her long-term boyfriend got dumped for cheating on her, this new man got her pregnant and they got married right away. He made lewd remarks about me, to me, from the first moment he met me, about my quaint, my tail, my country, my box, my jar, my contrariness, my monosyllable. And he used words, words sexual, I did not understand. He knew I didn't understand them, but that, but that I knew enough to grasp they were sexual. That was what gave him pleasure. He was 35, 12 and 35. That was the 23 years difference too. So he made his remarks and felt entitled to make his remarks and I did not speak because I did not know how to respond to this person. He never made his comments when my sister was in the room. Always, whenever she'd leave the room, it was a switch turned on inside him. 
On the plus side, I wasn't physically frightened of him. In those days, in that place, violence was everybody's main gauge for judging those around them, and I could see at once he didn't have it, that he didn't come from that perspective. All the same, his predatory nature pushed me into frozenness every time. So he was a piece of dirt, and she was in a bad way with being pregnant, with still loving her long-term man, and not believing what he'd done to her, disbelieving he wasn't missing her, for he wasn't. He was off now with somebody else. She didn't see this man here, this older man she'd married, but had been too young herself, and too unhappy, and too in love, just not with him, to have taken up with him. I stopped visiting, even though she was sad, because I could no longer take his words and facial expressions. Six years on, as he tried to work his way through me and my remaining elder sisters, with the three of us, directly, indirectly, politely, fuck-offly, rejecting him, the milkman, also uninvited, but much more frightening, much more dangerous, stepped from out of nowhere onto the scene. I didn't know whose milkman he was. He wasn't our milkman. I don't think he was anybody's. He didn't take milk orders. There was no milk about him. He didn't ever deliver milk. Also, he didn't drive a milk lorry. Instead, he drove cars, different cars, often flash cars, though he himself was not flashy. For all this, though, I only noticed him and his cars when he started putting himself in them in front of me. Then there was that van, small, white, nondescript, shape-shifting. From time to time, he was seen at the wheel of that van, too. He appeared one day driving up in one of his cars as I was walking along reading Ivanhoe. Often I would walk along reading books. I didn't see anything wrong with this, but it became something else to be added as further proof against me. Reading while walking was definitely on the list. You're one of the who's it girls, aren't you? So-and-so was your father, wasn't he? Your brothers, thingy, thingy, thingy and thingy, used to play in the Hurley team, didn't they? Hop in, I'll give you a lift. Thank you. Thank you, Anna, that's great. And I'm really glad you read out all the swear words. Um, so many new words for vagina in this book. It's very educating for me. Um, the characters, again, not all of them are named. They're, they're middle sister, younger, oldest. Um, some, at points, they're hard to, to keep track of um, because there are so many people and so many families. And I love that quality of it, that kind of chaotic part of it where they're all you know, shouting at one another in kitchens. And, and you know, they, they really, to me, felt very real. But I wonder why you didn't give all of them or many of them names. Names. It just didn't work with names. Um, I tried it at one point, I used to have a writing buddy, um, and I thought I'll read it out to her and see what she thinks, and as I was reading it, I, I was going inside, oh no, 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 this is just not the same book, and then when I finished she said, oh no, 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 this is not the same book, <laughs> and I thought, but even as I was reading it, I, I knew the words just, the words just, no names came that worked, it was what came. 
-hmm. and that's how I do it. I mean, there is a certain, given the, the paranoia of the world, there is a certain safety in, in not being straightforward, mm. um, going all around the houses and not quite getting to the point um, or getting to a bit of the point, but not maybe the point of the point. And, you know, it's all protecting, sort of protecting oneself. So the names right. thing, I think, the anonymity was part of that. Also, there's a collective, a collect, the collective's more important than um, the individual identity. But of course, there are these little rebellions that come out. So it's not like she has a name that only you know that I could ask you to tell us. Um, does she have a name? No, she does. She, she no. doesn't. In your head, when you think of her, you just think of middle daughter. No, I just got the girl for a long yeah. time, and then it, it just wasn't even that. It was more I was in her head with all these these circumlocutions and um, the way she thinks, and you know, the way she her digressions. I mean, it's part of how she. It's almost well, part of her. It's yeah. her makeup. Yes, she does love a digression. Yes, she does. She does. She Absolutely. does. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so now you know that you fund the Man Booker Prize, Anna Burns. It must have been quite a whirlwind the last few days. Um, how has it been for you? A whirlwind, yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, today I feel a bit, a bit sort of more grounded, but I mean, I've been meeting people, you know, I, I mean, I went to my favourite offices this morning and they had a, a tea party for me and it was lovely to meet them all and People were saying to me, oh, yes, and, and you've won the Booker. And, and, I, and I think, oh, yes, I have won the Booker. Um, so there's a bit of that, like, yes, yes, I have won the Booker. It's true, it's real. At the time, totally stunned, shocked, delighted. But but mostly it was shock in the moment. And then yesterday it was a, just meet, a interview after interview. So I, I couldn't, I wasn't grounded yesterday. God knows what those journalists are going to be writing. What I said, I have no idea what I said. Um... And I got to the hotel room and was totally exhausted last night and fell asleep practically without, you know, taking off my coat. Um, I did take off my coat. Um, <laughs> and then today I felt more rested about it and have, I think I've been smiling all day, you know, total strangers saying, you know, right, okay. So I'm getting smiles back from total strangers thinking, <laughs> oh, wait, okay, why not? So a lot of joy. I feel a lot of joy and excitement. It's just a lovely feeling. It's lovely. Long may the smiles continue. And one of the one of the really um, wonderful pieces of news around this is that you're the first um, Northern Irish writer to win the prize. And I wonder what that means to you. It means a lot. I mean, it's Northern Ireland is, I mean, it was a, it was a you know, historically violent time and place during the Troubles and it absolutely demands to be written about and Milkman for me would be more my book about the troubles than my first two books. This book, when I was writing it, I could feel the troubles around around me the whole time. I could feel, oh, this is more political. This is definitely about one aspect of the troubles, which is that that long-term effect of being affected by violence and trying to survive amidst intense pressure without fragmenting or losing your sense of humanity. And a lot of people, besides myself, have lived through that. I mean, a lot of people didn't live through it because they were killed. A lot of people have been maimed through it. It doesn't matter what side you're from. You have those same that same damage that gets into your very body and bones and then you try to normalise that and live with it and survive. So this felt more my, it felt more political. It felt more about this is my troubles book. And does winning the prize for that book, in a sense, 
is there also an element of recognition of the experience you're describing in in that? Well, I I actually didn't know I was the first writer from Northern Ireland not to get to get the Booker Prize. So that when the first person told me that at the Guild Hall, I thought, really have they have they Googled that? Are they sure? <laughs> um, and I I don't know what I answered her, but I'm thrilled to be that. I'm thrilled to be the first writer. And um, good on Northern Ireland for getting <laughs> for getting the man Booker. <laughs> good on you. <laughs> um, I want to ask as well about the effect a prize can have on a writer who, you know, you're you're working hard away at your work. What does what does the prize mean in terms of the realities of your daily life? Does it mean more time? Um, Luke Ellis, who's the director of uh, Man Group, said that the prize can offer more time and space yes. and probably not much time on your hands immediately but will it mean time to write for you? Yes it will it'll make a huge monetary difference to me and then having been affirmed in that way will definitely help me feel creative for the next endeavour I always do everything better when I'm happy everything so you know I can't imagine not I mean creativity just sort of it just comes out of happiness for me. Mm. Do you think you'll still be walking down the street reading a book? Well, you know, I, I still do do it, not quite to the same extent as I used to, but um, yes, I, I do still do that. So yeah, I will. <laughs> Maybe that will lead to the next novel. Uh, well, I'd like to go back to a novel I was writing before Milkman came. It's very near conclusion when it was left in 2009 or 10, I think I sat it down. So I'd like to go back and finish that. Anna Burns, thank you so much for talking to me and congratulations again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Southbank Centre Book Podcast. You can hear all of our readings from the shortlisted authors at southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash podcasts.